is the uh, Bel the the um, ex exhibition centre for the Titanic in Belfast. And those of us that went on that uh, came back with rave reports. It was an outstanding exhibition. Uh, it has captured the imagination in recent days because of its tragedy, uh, because of its association with the uh, high society of the time, uh, because it was a time when there was boundless confidence, boundless optimism in the abilities of technology. The story of the Titanic is a prime example of the importance of having beliefs that are true. You see, at the time of the, the ship's launching and its maiden voyage, there was a widespread belief that the Titanic was unsinkable. In actual fact, the White Star Line, the owner, said that it was designed to be practically unsinkable. But the, the subtlety between being practically unsinkable and being unsinkable was lost on those that were sailing on it and sadly on the captain, Captain Smith, uh, who captained the boat on that uh, fatal maiden voyage. And on the night of the 15th of April, 1912, no less than four warnings of icebergs in the vicinity of the Titanic were given and were ignored uh, by the captain and his crew, convinced of the unsinkability of the Titanic and probably more preoccupied with uh, the cross-Atlantic uh, timings of other competitor vessels. But when the ship struck the icebergs, the difference between being practically unsinkable and unsinkable became a difference that cost the lives of 1,503 passengers. The same holds true for eternal life. You can't be saved from your sin unless you know the truth of who the Saviour is. You can't be saved from your sin unless you know the truth of who the Saviour is. There is only one Saviour who has been promised in the Bible, revealed in the flesh and coming again in glory. And even more than was the case with the Titanic, wrong notions about who the Saviour is will have consequences that are of eternal significance. And that's why the confession that Peter makes here at this stage of Luke's gospel is so vitally important. And the gospel writers that record it underline its importance in different ways. In Matthew's gospel, it is the turning point of his gospel, placed just over halfway through Matthew. Uh, he records that after the incident, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. It's a crucial turning point. Luke uh, has stressed the importance of Peter's confession uh, in two different ways. Uh, first of all, uh, he has the, the question repeated in his gospel, who is this? Who is this? Be underlined, the importance of knowing who Jesus is. Uh, the angry Pharisees respond to the healing of the paralyzed man with, who is this who forgives sins? The people who hear Jesus speaking with authority in the synagogue say, who is this who speaks with such authority? And just recently we saw that Herod, hearing all that was being done in Jesus' name, is asking that very same question. Who is this? He's heard that people are saying it's John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. He's saying, who is this? I beheaded John. Who is this? 
And again, the same alternatives are repeated before Jesus nails it down and Peter confesses, you are the Christ of God. Another marker that Luke lays down to show us how important this is, is to, to say, uh, which the other gospel writers don't point out, to say that Jesus was praying just before this question of his identity arose. Now, the fact that Jesus prayed is significant at a number of levels. First of all, he is the Son of God and yet had a prayer life. He communed with his heavenly Father. And if the Lord Jesus uh, prayed with God, it underlines how important it is for we, his followers, who are sinful, who are fallible, uh, to seek that daily walk with God. But the Gospels uh, include references to Jesus' prayer life at points of importance, when important decisions have to be made, where there's a turning point. And so Luke tells us that when Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness, he was praying. When Jesus was to appoint disciples, 12 apostles, he spent time with God in prayer. When Jesus will struggle before going to the cross, he will be at prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. And now Luke is telling us that it was when Jesus was praying that this question of who he is came up. And Luke is in effect saying, get ready for something really important. I've told you that Jesus, the Son of God, is at prayer. Are you ready for what's following? Are you on the edge of your seats because there's something which is vitally important for you to hear? And that thing is the question of who Jesus is. Here is an understanding of Jesus that you must have before you can become a Christian. Here is an understanding of Jesus that must shape your life as a follower of Jesus. Here are three things concerning the identity of Jesus. He divides opinion. He is the servant king. Third, he is the rejected king. Jesus divides opinion. He is the servant king, but he's also the rejected king. Some of your teachers, uh, you know the importance of the question, posing the good question. You know that there are certain questions which are more important than others. They're crucial. They they get to the very heart of the matter. They're like uh, one of these smart missiles that modern uh, armies use, which find their way through all the camouflage and and penetrate the defences to get right at the heart of the opposite military's defence system. The question that gets to the heart of the matter. And you ask the crucial question, you wait for the answer, and the answer that you get either elates you or makes you wish you'd chosen another career path because it's clear that they're not getting it. And this is a crucial question that is being brought by Jesus. Jesus asks, first of all, what are the opinion polls saying about who I am? What are the crowd saying? Disciples say that there's quite a few ideas out there. Some say John the Baptist. <clears throat> Evidently the belief had circulated that John had come back from the dead after being beheaded by Herod. <clears throat> and that Jesus was he. Others said Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet. Others were more vague saying, well, one of the old time prophets has come back from the dead. Now, we were looking at this last week and we saw that when Jesus did that 
enacted sermon that there's the feeding of the 5,000, that there were echoes of these different uh, old-time prophets, but that Jesus exceeded all that they stood for, that he clearly distanced himself from them. Jesus is far greater than a John, an Elijah, a Moses. And the question of who he is is so important that there is no place there can be no possibility of ambiguity. And so Jesus doesn't say, well, that's okay. There's lots of opinions about who I am. He doesn't leave it there at all. He presses home the question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus goes on to say. And Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Now, before we unpack that, notice this, there is a right answer and there is a wrong answer to who Jesus is. We're not talking about uh, <coughs> an idea that uh, is vague enough that you can have contradictory opinions about it. You know the way people speak about spiritual things today? Uh, there's nothing which is absolutely true. You can believe, you know, all kinds of contradictory things when it comes to belief. You can believe that uh, there's no God uh, and that we're all reincarnating according to the law of karma. And that's okay. You can believe that our lives are controlled by the motion of the planets. That's okay. That's your belief. That's my belief. Equally valid. No one ever thinks to apply that kind of reasoning to engineering, uh, construction of buildings or designing cars. But in the area of belief, you can have completely contradictory beliefs and people are very uncomfortable about saying that something's right and something is wrong. But Jesus is insisting on a right answer. He doesn't accept the opinions of the crowd as being equally valid. He doesn't say... Well, Peter, that's a nice answer. Hi, Matthew, what do you think? James, what's your opinion? What's your perspective on who I am? There is an objective truth. And the Lord Jesus is concerned that not only his disciples, but we know precisely who he is. I think that's so important for us as Christians to be confident in. Because we can so very easily be molded by the way the world thinks of belief. <clears throat> For example, I, I firmly believe in the importance of, of discussion-style Bible study because that encourages everyone to participate and to think things through. But there's always a danger that unless the leader is, is a strong leader knowing where he is going, that simply all kinds of, of thoughts which may not be correct are accepted as equally valid. And that exercise should always be about collectively arriving at the truth. Because we stand firmly against the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. Secondly, the truth is something that each of us has to make our own. Uh, truth not personal in the sense that you know you have your truth, I have mine, it's all personal. But it is personal 
in the sense that the truth that there is about Jesus is something that you must make personal. It must be truth that you appropriate for yourself. You buy into this truth. You affirm this truth because that is part of what it is to have faith. Faith is about believing and receiving the correct doctrine concerning Jesus and salvation. And so you must make it your own. That's why uh, Jesus presses home the question, what do you say? What do you say? It has to become personal. And then thirdly, this truth concerning Jesus is a truth that divides people. Divides people. <clears throat> That's why people are uncomfortable about declaring that there is absolute truth in spiritual things. Because people prefer to be together, you know, nice and warm and fuzzy. No sharp divides separating one from another. But friends, that is not what the Bible declares about truth. The truth is something which divides. And to be on the wrong side of the line dividing truth from error is to be on the wrong side of a line that separates us eternally. For example, there's a group of people who believe that the Bible is the word of God. Uh, they try to keep its moral standards. They believe in Jesus' virgin birth. They believe he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. But these people, who are Jehovah's Witnesses, don't believe that Jesus is God. And they're leading themselves and others to a lost eternity, which incidentally they don't believe in either, although it is taught in the Bible. It's so important to be on the right side of that line dividing truth and error. Secondly, note that Peter's confession of Jesus tells us that he is the servant king. He is the Christ of God, Peter says. Now in saying that, Peter is affirming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of someone who would come as king, as deliverer, as Messiah. A promise that goes right back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And in the chaos of Eden, when our, our first human parents rebelled against God, God promises Eve that a descendant of hers will crush the serpent's head. And all through biblical history, you have the outworking of that promise. The seed of the woman is coming. He's coming. He's coming. And Satan seeks to thwart his coming, but eventually the serpent crusher comes and does his work. He is the Christ of God. Christ uh, is not, as some people think, it's not a surname. You know, when, when we speak of Jesus Christ, it's not like Ivor, MacDonald, MacDonald, a surname. Christ is a title. It is the Greek for anointed. Jesus, the anointed. And in the Old Testament, the same title is Messiah. So you have Messiah and Christ. They mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. Now, why, why is that so significant? Why, why anointed? Well, there were three classes of 
people who were associated with being anointed. There were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets and kings were literally anointed with oil. Uh, sorry, prophets and priests were literally anointed with oil. And I'm getting this all wrong. Priests and kings were literally anointed with oil. The prophets, uh, there was a, a spiritual anointing. Isaiah speaks of the Lord anointing him, the spirit of the Lord anointing him. But in all senses, uh, they're associated with an anointing. And the word Christ, when it's used of Jesus, is saying that Jesus fulfills all that prophet, priests, and kings did. That someone who is rolling all of these uh, works into one. He's a prophet, first of all, because he comes to bring us God's word. God speaks to us fully through Jesus. If you want to know about yourself and your place in the world, your purpose in being here, if you want to know how you can have a relationship with God, then listen to Jesus through his word, because he is our great prophet. Jesus is our priest. What did a priest do? A priest made sacrifice and made intercession that God's people might come near to God himself. A priest was there to deal with the barrier of sin through offering sacrifice. Jesus is our priest because he brings us near to God, because he has offered himself on the cross of Calvary. He is our sin bearer. And not only has he done that, but now he doesn't offer continuing sacrifice, but he's offering intercession. He is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us that we might go on in our Christian walk. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And this is where the the promises about David that we've been singing about this morning come into their own because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to David that he would have a kingdom that would endure forever. It would have no end. Now, if all that meant was that there would be a, a territory in the Middle East which would be eternally a kingdom populated by David's successors, all that, that's all it meant, and that's clearly not true. But what it meant was that there would be someone who was physically descended from David, who would come in and who would bring in God's kingdom, who would bring in a rule of truth and righteousness and salvation. And the great drama of the Bible, what makes the Bible uh, so exciting at the most basic level, is that you have this wonderful story of how that promise is being fulfilled. And that the promised king is continually, his line, the line of succession is continually coming under threat. Crazy kings and queens trying to stamp out the line of Jesus. The people who had come in from outside to try to thwart God's purposes. And God's purposes triumph every time. And the line is hidden in obscurity for long enough. And then eventually the angels trumpet that today is born to you in David's town a saviour who is Christ the Lord. God keeps his promise. The king comes. Isaiah tells us in a wonderful way that uh, he is the one who is God. When Isaiah speaks about the coming of Jesus, he speaks about uh, uh, a servant, a messenger, who will call on people to prepare the way for someone who's coming. Who is this one who's coming? He is none less than God himself. The Messiah is God. 
Luke begins his gospel with the promise that the son that will be born to Mary will be given the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And he tells her, the Holy One will be called the Son of God. And this servant king is disclosed fully on the cross. When he dies, we have this final irony that the one who has condemned him to his death is constrained to command that the superscription on the cross should read that he's a king, the king of the Jews, the king who reigns from a cross, a king who breaks the fetters of death and rises on the third day in glory, who will come again, not in humiliation, but in glory and majesty. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But also, and so important for them to understand, he will be rejected. He will be rejected. Jesus' response to Peter's accurate answer is surprising, isn't it? When somebody gives you a right answer in the classroom, you, you, uh, you want that answer to be widely known. And you'd expect that if uh, Peter gets the right answer, that Jesus is going to say, good, well done, Peter, now tell everybody about it. Now there will be a time coming when Peter will do exactly that. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is going to make the temple ring with the knowledge of who Jesus is. He's going to say, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He will declare that Jesus is the Christ and the resurrection will be the proof of that. But the death and resurrection haven't come yet. And the time is not right for people's expectation to be built up. Why? Because they haven't got a true idea of what kind of Messiah Jesus is. They're looking for someone who can pander to all their desires. They're wanting someone who can kick the Romans out. They detest the reign of Rome over Israel. And so they want a Messiah who they think will come to give them self-determination. Who will come and who bless them materially. But that's not the kind of Messiah the Bible foretold. It's not the kind of Messiah that's come in Jesus. And for Peter and for others to stoke up too quickly the wrong idea of a Messiah will be to resist God's purpose. And so Jesus says to Peter, don't tell people Don't tell people yet. Jesus has not come to put a donkey in every stable and a chicken in every pot. He's not come today to put a car in every drive and money in our bank account. (coughs) He's a king who was rejected and his people suffer and are rejected with him. And that's why Jesus uses what is actually his favourite title for himself the son of man and says the son of man must be rejected the son of man what's that about the son of man is a brilliant title for Jesus because it it really tells us that he is the king that he is God but it doesn't really appear to. It doesn't, it doesn't stoke up expectations in the way that Christ or Messiah is. Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, 14, where 
Daniel in a vision sees someone coming in the clouds like a son of man and he receives glory and power. Now you can see why that's a good title for Jesus because it's pointed to his glory. And yet son of man can also mean uh, somebody like a man. And so it does a double job. It's being true to who Jesus is and yet it's stressing his meekness and his lowliness. And Jesus tells us that this son of man must suffer. And the word that he uses is expressing a necessity. It's not going to be an accident that Jesus will go to the cross. It has been ordained of God. This is why he's come. It's his calling. That he must be rejected. And again, Luke's using a word here that implies a careful scrutiny before discarding. People will pass the line over Jesus. They will come to him with their expectations. And the people who do this will be the the high-ranking ones, the religious leaders, the, the high priests, the scribes. They'll look at Jesus and say, we don't find in you what we're looking for. And they will judicially reject him. It's a necessity, but it's not the end. On the third day, he will rise again. This, Jesus says, this is who I am. This is the kind of Messiah I am. Satan always wants us to make worldly self-interest our goal. He wants us to pursue that. We'll not find any gratification for our hunger for wealth, or prestige, or fame, popularity, and following this king. I am the king, Jesus says, who must be rejected. And this is the saviour we proclaim. A saviour who is glorious in majesty and wonderful in meekness, whose condemnation and death is essential for our salvation. <coughs> And there is no other saviour. And you can see why this is so important, can't you? Because to be saved, you need to know the truth about the saviour. You're not saved by believing in a product of your own fancy, your own imagination. You're not saved by a saviour who really is a projection of yourself. You're saved by this saviour. He's the king. He's the servant king. Do you know him? Do you know the true Jesus? Is this Jesus first confessed by Peter as a Christ of God? Is he your saviour? Is he the, the hinge as it were on which your whole life turns? May his truth search our hearts. May we know him uh, as our Lord and King. Let's bow in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this high mark in the gospel. And we pray that uh, we would be challenged by the words of the Lord. Who do you say I am? We might make our personal response to that question. And that our response will not be one that uh, is 
shaped by what the world says around us or what we would like it to be, but that we would be shaped by the Bible, by the word of Jesus himself. And Lord, we pray that this one who is the Christ of God, who is the Son of Man, the one who was rejected and killed for our sin and who was risen in triumph and power, Lord, may he be the one who rules each and every life of those of us bowed now in your presence to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Close now, uh, singing our final hymn, Jesus is the name we honour. Jesus is the name we praise, the majestic name above all other names, the highest heaven and earth proclaim that Jesus is our God.
may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.